Their surprise should catch our attention. These two groups standing before the judgment seat, both caught off guard by the verdict. But when, the group on the right asks, when was it that we saw you and took care of you? The group on the left mirrors the question. But when, they ask, when was it that we saw you and did not take care of you? And Christ the King answers, just as you did it to the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And as we hear these words on this Sunday morning, we have to be careful not to let them slip too quickly by. When you've heard something your whole life, it's easy to domesticate it, to become comfortable with it, to tuck it neatly into a compartment so that it no longer has the power to disturb. But the surprise of those who are judged should prompt us to pause and to linger. It should disturb us because their surprise serves as a beacon of sorts, a warning calling us to recognize that there is something running beneath the surface of our existence, something beyond what we can see. We are being called to see that our everyday lives are charged with eternal meaning. To make sense of this, and to understand this often misinterpreted passage from Matthew 25, we're going to have to place this parable in its context, not only within the Gospel of Matthew, but within history itself. And for help, we turn to our New Testament reading. Our text from 1 Corinthians 15 is among the most conceptually dense in all of Paul's letters, in part because it's filled with illusions and imagery that are difficult to discern because of our distance from Paul's world. Our passage sits in the middle of Paul's chapter-length argument about the resurrection. He has been responding to church members in Corinth who have been telling the congregation that there will be no resurrection of the dead on the last day, that those who have died will stay in their graves. Paul begins the chapter by reminding them of the good news he had preached to them, the gospel of Christ's resurrection and his appearances to many witnesses. The Christians in Corinth had believed this gospel and confessed faith in Jesus. But now, Paul thinks, they risk unraveling this confession. If the dead are not going to be raised, he says, then Christ has not been raised. In other words, if there is no resurrection of the dead to come, then the gospel Paul had preached to them must not have been true. Paul must have borne false witness to them and the Corinthians' faith has been for nothing. They are to be pitied because their dead are now lost forever, and they remain trapped in their sins. But in fact, Paul says, and this is where our text begins, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have died. Christian thinking begins with the reality of the resurrection. The phrase first fruits is drawn from the harvest, the season of gathering and reaping. Paul's saying that Christ's resurrection is not an isolated event, as if it concerned Christ's own personal situation or status before God. 
No. Christ's resurrection is the first basket out of a fertile field. That first trip to the French market in spring. That first taste of the great resurrection harvest to come. Because when Christ folded his grave clothes and walked out of the tomb, a new era of our own history began. The kingdom had arrived, and the king now stands triumphant over our common enemy, death. This is the crucial point that the Corinthians did not grasp when they confessed their faith in Jesus. To believe that Christ was raised from the dead is not only to believe something about Christ, it is also to believe something about us. This is why Paul turns to typology. For since death came through a human being, he says, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Paul's reference to Adam turns our imagination towards those early chapters of Genesis, and they are running beneath the surface here. Adam and Eve were created in God's own image, and they were given stewardship over the world God had made so that they could reflect God's image within it and bring order to it. As the psalmist puts it in Psalm 8, you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet. In the biblical world, to have something under your feet is to reign over it, to not be threatened by it. But as we know, Adam and Eve lost their footing. Their sin unlocked the gates and allowed death to break in. And now death reigns over our world as a hostile power, confining us, holding us captive, and ravaging us until that day when we will finally be forced to bow the knee to it. Instead of reigning over creation as God intended, we will be buried within it. But the good news is that Christ broke into this fallen world to unite himself to us, to join us in our captivity. He came to an oppressed people, a people who lived in their own land, but who were never at home because they had been made subject to a foreign power. And he began to tell them about a new kingdom built on old promises, promises like the ones we heard in the reading from the prophet Ezekiel today. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among, are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. We can picture the child Jesus being nurtured in these promises at the knees of his mother as she hummed songs about the lowly being lifted. And so when he takes up the scroll as a young man in Nazareth, he does so to declare that he is the one who will fulfill these promises. He proclaims good news to the poor, the release of the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom 
for the oppressed. And then he begins to enact these promises. He seeks out the lost. He touches the untouchable. He heals the sick. He feeds the hungry. He teaches the children. He loves the sinners. Day by day, Jesus confronts the powers and brings our human nature back to the heights that we ourselves could not hold. And then he faces our enemy, death. He submits to its reign in silence, allowing death to take him, commending his spirit to his father in the hope of vindication. His friends pick up his broken body and seal it in a tomb, and along with it, his promises. And then the spirit breathes life into Christ's body. God rolls away the stone, and the currents of history begin to flow through old channels again. Christ's resurrection corresponds antithetically to Adam's sin. When Christ folds his grave clothes and walks into the morning light, he does so as a victorious king. We have been liberated. A kingdom has come, a new creation where death no longer reigns. We live in the age of resurrection. Let us sing to the Lord, our psalmist said today. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And these praises are our cue, because this is, because this is where we, the souls gathered in our homes, come in. Because Christ's resurrection is not the end of the story. It is the beginning of the end. Things are not yet all in all. Death has been defeated, but it has not yet been destroyed. The final victory is still becoming true. And we have our being in this becoming. We live our time, our lives, in a time of fulfillment and expectation of a victory won, but not yet complete. This victory to come is the subject of the rest of our passage from 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 23. Paul is teaching them to think eschatologically, to reorder their understanding of the world by viewing the present in light of the future. But each in his own order, Paul says, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The word translated as order here can refer to a stage of a sequence but it is also the word used to describe a unit of soldiers in formation. Paul is drawing upon both meanings here. He's telling us that God has planned his assault on death this way. Christ, raised first, 
And then, in the second line of attack, we will be raised and restored to our rightful place in creation, able now to bring healing to a world that has been groaning as it awaits the resurrection of our bodies. But until that day, Christ reigns in our stead, exercising the dominion that the psalmist said God intended us to have. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, Paul says. The word for subjection in the Greek is the cognate of the word for order. Paul's point in these last few verses of our passage is that everything will end up in the appropriate place, in the precise order God intended from the beginning. The Son will hand a restored kingdom to the Father, who will rule it through his people, who have been raised to new life by the Spirit so that they can reflect God's image in the world. God will be all in all. It is this vision of the future that leads us back to our present and to our gospel passage. Because until that final day arrives, we have to figure out our place in this story, in this history, our role in the kingdom, that is here and still becoming. The key to understanding our gospel text is to read it in its context. Our parable is the culmination of a sermon, the last part of Christ's final discourse about the kingdom, a discourse that runs from the end of chapter 24 into 25. Jesus knows that he's about to face our enemy on the cross. And he is preparing his disciples for that life that comes after his death. He's teaching them about his final return. And again and again, his point is that they have to to stay ready. Because his return will take place at an unexpected moment. He shows them what it looks like to be ready through a series of parables. At the end of Matthew 24, he tells the story of two slaves who were put in charge of the master's other slaves while he's away. The wise slave does what he's supposed to do by feeding and taking care of the other slaves. The master finds him hard at work when he returns, and so he gets rewarded with more responsibility. The wicked slave assumes that the master's return will be delayed. So he beats the other slaves, ignores their needs, and spends his time getting drunk. When the master returns unexpectedly, the master is angry with the wicked slave. Jesus says that he will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus doesn't draw out this point or explain it. Instead, he tells two additional parables that build on the point of this first one. The second parable is about the ten bridesmaids at the beginning of Matthew 25. All ten take their lamps to go out and wait for the bridegroom to arrive. Five of them are wise, and they take extra oil for their lamps. The other five are foolish and do not bring extra oil. The bridegroom is delayed late into the night, and the bridesmaids understandably become drowsy and fall asleep. Finally, in the middle of the night, a shout comes, Look, here is the bridegroom! The bridesmaids all get up with their lamps, but the foolish ones have run out of oil. They then ask the wise bridesmaids to share, but they say no, because then none of them will have enough oil. 
So the foolish maids go out to buy extra oil, and while they're gone, the bridegroom comes, the wedding banquet begins, and the door is shut. When the foolish bridemaids arrive and ask to be let in, the bridegroom refuses and says he doesn't know them. Jesus concludes, Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Then Jesus immediately starts a third parable, the parable of the talents that Father Andrew talked about last week. A master goes on a journey, and he leaves three slaves behind to manage his affairs. He gives each slave an amount of money he thinks he can handle. To one slave, he gives five talents. To the second, he gives two. And to a third slave, he gives one talent. Immediately after he leaves, the slave who has five talents begins to trade with them, and before long, he's doubled his master's money. The second slave does the same, also doubling his master's money. But the slave who received one talent knows how ruthless his master can be. He doesn't want to lose what he has been given, so he buries the talent to keep it safe. When the master returns, he settles accounts. The first two slaves pleased him. Well done, good and faithful slave, he says. You have been faithful with a little, and now I will put you in charge of a lot. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the third slave came forward with his one talent. The master is furious, you wicked and lazy slave. You ought to have at least invested my money with the bankers so that on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. And then he took away his talent and threw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you read these three parables together, the takeaway is this. We have been charged with the task of caring for one another while our master is gone. And we need to be faithful to this task no matter how long it takes for our master to return. We need to stay awake and prepared. We have to use the gifts God has entrusted to us, putting them to work rather than fearfully guarding them. But what is the work we are called to be doing? Concretely, specifically, what do the souls gathered in this church need to be doing in this in-between resurrection time? That is the question our gospel text is answering. It is the culmination of Jesus' sermon, and it is a counter-parable. Most parables speak of everyday matters to point to spiritual realities. This parable speaks of spiritual realities to turn our focus to everyday matters. On that day, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And as we watch our king make this division, our passage from Ezekiel echoes, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. 
I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. And we hear the words of our psalmist. Forty years long I was grieved with this generation. It is a people that err in their hearts, for they have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath that they should not enter my rest. And we remember the order. Christ first, then us, we who live in resurrection time, a people embattled but free, servants charged with caring for one another as we prepare for our master's return. And then we hear the king speak. Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And the matter begins to become clear. Servants who are faithful with a little will be put in charge of a lot. The eternal runs through the everyday because the future has broken into the present. This future becomes visible in those moments when we meet together, in those times when we touch, heal, feed, welcome, and love one another. And as we hear those surprised cries, but when, but when, we need only to look at the souls in this congregation, the people to whom Christ has united his life, to find our answer. Amen.